Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. In this deep dive episode, we're going to be joined by law professor Leah Littman, who's going to help us break down all the happenings of the Supreme Court's April sitting. Of course, the April sitting is the final sitting where the court actually hears oral arguments. They do that from October to April. May and June will be filled with opinion writing for the justices. That's something that Justice Breyer may not appreciate after uh, his comments in an oral argument this sitting. I think, honestly, the, the cases that are cited in these briefs do that. And, and they tell you, they, they, they paint a pretty powerful picture. I urge you to read a lot of them. Uh, it's true, some of them are minor. so many. Some of these are, are very significant. And I get help from my law clerks. Many of these are, yeah, exactly. Many of these uh, are but the court has uh, still more than half of its opinions to go. The court has issued about 30 opinions and still has about 40 more left. All right. Buckle up. Buckle up. About to get real. <laughs> But we do have to chat about these last oral arguments. There were some some big ones. Yeah, and there, before even getting into that, we had some big grants setting up a big term for next term already. Kimberly, you want to fill us in a little bit about these big grants that we just got? Sure. I, I'll say just a little bit about them because I suspect that they will be the subject of a future deep dive episode. Um, but these are three... got to subscribe <laughs> if you want to hear it. You never know when it's going to come. And that's subscribe, all I'm going to say subscribe. about them. Um, no. <laughs> so these are three cases um, that, re- that deal with um, whether or not um, federal anti-discrimination laws... Um, here in particular, this is Title VII, which applies to workplaces, whether that um, the prohibition against sex discrimination um, applies to uh, LGBT individuals. And so um, I'm not really sure why the court has been hanging on to these tr- this trio of cases right. um, for so long. I think it had been these cases had been relisted 11 times Um or considered 11 times before they granted them. But they finally did, um, and with no explanation about what's been taking so long. Um, And so that'll be really an interesting um, and important case um, for the justices to hear next term. You know, I mentioned that we're dealing with Title VII, um, which applies in the workplace, but it will also apply um, to Title IX cases um, that apply to education. Um, So this is an issue that's really been, been boiling, and the Supreme Court is finally going to address it. Speaking of boiling issues and what's probably going to be a a 5-4 case, uh, we had an opinion this sitting in a closely watched case involving arbitration. Can you tell us a little bit about that one, Kimberly? Yeah. So this was um, along ideological lines, the 5-4 breakdown with conservatives, um, the five conservatives voting against the four uh, liberal justices. And, you know, this is another example of the Supreme Court really cutting back um, on class actions, on class arbitration, um, and kind of having a really robust um, pushing of employees and individ- and consumers into individual arbitration as a way to adjudicate any disputes that they might have. Um, that's kind of a very long line of cases of the Supreme Court doing that recently. And you saw frustration among uh, the dissenters, all of whom wrote their own dissenting opinion um, that, you know, the court was I can't remember the exact word Justice Ginsburg used. I think it was treacherously um, interpreting the uh, Federal Arbitration Act um, to kind of box out employees from getting kind of any meaningful um, remedies from their employer. So um, I was I was kind of shocked by the four dissents. Yeah. I mean, you can't get together and, you know, have one where maybe you join parts of some and not others, which even happened in in one of them. Just, you know, get one. Get yeah. One tight, like 300 page dissent together. And, 300 page yeah, dissent. Mueller report number two. Um, exactly. Yeah. Volume three. You know, this the is the Lamps Plus dissent. <laughs> Volume three. We, I mean, probably, you know, just as important to yeah, our nation. Same, just different. Um, 
No, but we I think it's especially unique um, from the court's more liberal justices. I mean, um, people may recall that this happened in the same sex marriage cases and mm-hmm. Obergefell, um, all four of the more conservative justices in dissent each wrote their own separate dissent, um, kind of varying degrees of hostility towards the majority's opinion. They also had something like that in the Carpenter case last term, which I don't know if it was all of the dissenters wrote their own, hmm. but it was there were definitely multiple ones. They might have each written one or it was close at least. Well, you know, I think I think the the part in the same sex marriage case was uh, the dissents were really contrasted by the fact that um, all of the justices in the majority only issued one opinion, just Justice Kennedy's opinion. And it seems likely that um, some of the justices may have had more to say right. um, than what was in that opinion, but they didn't write separate con- concurrences. And after um, after Obergefell was handed down, Justice Ginsburg um, actually said uh, in public that the liberal justices really wanted to speak with one voice um, in, in that. And I've kind of been seeing that that happen in dissents in a, as opposed to majorities right. um, from that wing of the court. But this one was one where um, they broke that mold. They had some thoughts. They had some thoughts. It was also interesting. I was sitting in the um, I came up to the courtroom um, after to cover one of the arguments that day and noticed that um, the attorney who had um, argued the case was actually happened to be in the courtroom that morning. And so got to see ah. the Supreme Court hand down um, Fun nice coincidence. Decision. Yes. Well, that's it's great. We should write an article with that title or something. Yeah. Well, you know, listeners, check out news.bloomberglaw.com. See if you have something that's already there by coincidence. <laughs> by coincidence. That would be fun, fun coincidence. coincidence. Um, and also it's some... actually um, when it happens at the pre- Supreme Court, it's called a scoincidence. That's I was trying already to... trademarked that. Yeah. I was trying to ignore not your... vulgar. Your... <laughs> or is it? I don't Segway, know. Segway. Segway. Uh, well, I think before we segue All right. to that, we should we should also note that um, we're recording this before um, we may get another round of opinions. Mm. Um, right. So uh, we may be leaving out a very important opinion. But it's Thursday, April twenty fifth. Um, so if the court issues opinions um, on the next Monday, um, we may be missing something. But the only other opinion that the court had issued in the April sitting, as of the time of this recording, um, was actually a dig. Uh, dismissed as improvidently granted in a securities case. Um, And that one had just been argued the week before, so pretty quick turnaround. Yeah. Um, Hopefully we'll get to talk about that a little bit with our guest. Hopefully. No way to know. No. (laughs) (sighs) Okay, so Jordan, I know you're itching to get to immoral and... And scandalous. Scandalous. I'm not just immoral, scandalous as well. So way back on Monday, April 15th, the sitting kicked off with arguments in Yonko against Brunetti. And of course, that's a the closely watched case involving what's maybe a vulgar word, maybe not. It's spelled F-U-C-T, and that's a clothing line where the issue was whether the government could deny that line a trademark for being scandalous or vulgar. Um, but Kimberly, you were at the argument, right? Yes. And um, And how scandalous was it or not? (laughs) It wasn't very scandalous. um, And that's because, as is kind of the tradition in the Supreme Court, the justices and the attorneys tried mightily to not say any cuss words. Um, And so kind of came up with some creative ways to get around um, saying that word that although I kind of feel like I'm in Harry Potter whenever we do this. um, This is embarrassing, but... um... Don't don't say it. Don't say you've never read Harry Potter. I'm not going to say that, but that is true. I've also never seen the movies, so you could say when it comes to Harry Potter. Well, I'm okay. fucked. <laughs> it just in Harry Potter, one of the big things is that you know the the bad guy is named Voldemort. That I've people, heard of. People yeah. don't say that. You know, it's oh, he okay, who must it. not be named. Yeah, yeah. And Harry Potter, you know, comes out and got just it. says it. Um, so I feel like you're kind of like Harry Potter because you just said fucked. All right. Well, he's everybody likes him, right? I don't know how it ends. Does <laughs> it end badly for him? I don't know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm not sure we could be friends anymore. All right. Well, hey, we're we friends. friends. Hey, hey. <laughs> that's a big development. Wow. You guys just heard that. Heard that for the first time. Wow. Uh, oh, wow. Anyway, so the justices, let's talk about them. Right. Um, so. so what did they say? If, 
They didn't say F-U-C-T. Well, you know, we we saw uh, Justice Gorsuch um, actually was concerned with saying a lot more um, with just that. He pointed to this pretty... um, dirty and vulgar chart in the respondents brief oh yeah um the, looks like there was a pretty serious split on uh, milf from that chart yeah about these inconsistent ways that the that the patent and trade office has um enforced this ban on scandalous marks um and he was saying that he really really doesn't want to get into the charts i could not myself see a rational line through that chart at the end of the red brief. Um, is there one that the government's aware of? Or? Well, I think in part the PTO looks to context. And a lot of the examples that are given of, confu- of similar marks, one of which is refused registration, one of which is granted registration, are marks in which people will use a slightly different combination of letters that phonetically evokes an existing profane word. So you have marks that use the letters P-H-U-C and the PTO will, in part, examine context in order to determine, is that mark intended? I, I don't want to be- go through the examples. I really don't want to do that. <laughs> but um, Reluctant. Can't get into that, but you could talk about murder, assault, blood, guts, and all this stuff. You just can't say don't, F-U-C-T. Yeah, don't, don't say that. All right. um, and then we also saw Justice Breyer come up uh, with some interesting ways. As he does. Tam. Because it is the because uh, I, I, I've looked into it a little, and there are certain ones that have exactly the same physiological effect on a person as any as the word we're using here. And, and Justice Alito, one of the oh come on, words. you know, come on. Well, I agree. Be with serious. You. We know what you know what he's trying to say. So, it's, um, but probably the best one was from um, Malcolm Stewart in the Solicitor General's office, who described it like this. Particular marks uh, shocking than others. I, the, the PTO, it, its initial determination was that this mark would be perceived by a substantial segment of the pub- public as the equivalent of the profane past participle form of uh, a well-known word of profanity and perhaps the paradigmatic perf- uh, word of profanity in our language. So why are you using a subject? Wow. Cover your ears, listeners. <laughs> Malcolm Stewart's coming through. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was fun to watch them uh, try so hard not to say a four-letter word. All right, well, that's no fun. What else do we got for arguments? So we also um, had an interesting day for um, appellate Twitter, um, the popular hashtag um, on Twitter made up of uh, appellate lawyers and judges and students and basically anyone interested in appeals. A couple of um, kind of the staples of appellate Twitter um, or their firms were involved uh, in the litigation. So it was fun to see kind of the community. um, IRL. I don't know what that means. Isn't that in real life? Oh, It was Twitter IRL. You know, you threw a YOLO reference in, you know, I think it was the last podcast. I was like, wait, what? I'm looking at the analytics. I'm trying to connect with a cooler audience. So good luck to me. (laughs) Well, IRL, um, you know, some people met up and um, there was a lot of support on Twitter. And afterwards, one of the attorneys um, who's known as the dean of the appellate Twitter um, gave gave some a breakdown of how he had prepared for oral argument and worth worth a look. Cool. I think that... um, Gets us caught up on a lot of the arguments. Um, of course, there was a pretty big one that we haven't chatted about yet. And let's bring in our guest. Our very extra special guest. <laughs> and we're pleased to have on our special guest, Leah Littman. Leah is a professor at UC Irvine School of Law. She was a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, and in the fall, she'll be joining the faculty at Michigan Law School. Leah, thanks for joining us on Cases and Controversies. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's so great um, that you're a special guest and not an unspecial guest. All our guests here are special, (laughs) as our listeners know. Well, that makes me feel less special. Leah is extra special. This is actually... (laughs) 
I wasn't, we're going to announce this now. This is actually our first extra special guest. Oh, wow. Leah Littman. Wow. So we're setting the bar really high. Hopefully we can put some applause in here or <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nico just told me. Um, so we, we noted earlier in our discussions that the Supreme Court um, issued a dig in a securities case. Um, and we kind of just wanted to get a clerk's perspective on, um, you know, how these digs come about and kind of some of the procedures that the Supreme Court has adopted lately to avoid them. Sure. So the case that the Supreme Court digged is Emulex. Um, and the issue in that case was going to be whether a party can make out a claim for a violation of a uh, violation of the Securities Exchange Act by establishing that the defendant made a negligent misstatement as opposed to a reckless or intentional one. Mm-hmm. Um, however, at oral argument, the Supreme Court justices, and particularly the Chief and Justice Kavanaugh, were interested in a separate but related question, and that's whether the private plaintiffs had a cause of action to sue for a violation of the Securities Exchange Act right. at all. Um, so the way the dig process works is before a case is granted, the clerks write memos, and part of the memo writing process is to look for problems in the case that Mm -hmm. might prevent the court from reaching the question that the parties are asking the court to decide. So they're looking for vehicle issues, you know, whether an argument was raised below or whether there's a complicated set of facts um, or an alternative basis for affirming the judgment that might prevent the court from resolving a clean legal issue. And that process has changed a little bit in the recent past in that there is now what appears to be a kind of mandatory relist procedure, where if the court is interested in granting a case, it will often, though not always, relist the case and take another week during which other clerks will look to make sure that there are, in fact, no vehicle issues in a case. And so that's how the court tries to prevent having to dismiss cases as improvidently granted because there are imperfect vehicle issues. Of course, there are still other reasons to potentially dismiss a case, you Mm -hmm. know, aside from vehicle issues. Here it looks like maybe what happened is that the issue on which the court granted cert didn't turn out to be perhaps of interest to the court and the justices who wanted to reach this other question about whether there's implied right of action couldn't because that argument hadn't been pressed or passed on below. Right. Yeah. And it's not clear if that's something that really could have been avoided. Uh, gotcha. Yeah. I, pretty early on in the argument, Justice Ginsburg jumped in to um, bring up this issue about how, you know, the argument hadn't been brought up below. At all. Mr. Gore, why should we consider that when it wasn't raised in this case until, what was it, the motion for rehearing in the Court of Appeals? It went through trial court, Court of Appeals, not a word. Everybody accepted there was a private right of action. And you were now making the non-existence of a private right, your principal argument. But as you as you well know, this is a court of review, not a first view. If we're going to take up that question, it shouldn't start yet. Sure. Uh- I think um, unless there's anything else to say about MULEX, we've said more about it than the justices did in their, <laughs> yeah. in their uh, per curiam order or opinion. Um, I think we can move on to probably what was the most anticipated part of the sitting, which was the census cases or the census case. Um, can you give us just like a 30,000 foot view of what this case is about? Sure. So the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, notified the president and the public that he was planning on adding a question to the 2020 census about citizenship. And so these cases are challenging that prospective addition of the citizenship question to the census, and they're doing so on two grounds. First is that the addition of the citizenship question is arbitrary and capricious or in violation of some of the statutes that constrain the Census Act. In particular, the parties are arguing that the secretary's decision doesn't account for the relevant evidence or misconstrued some evidence or ignored some contrary evidence about the relative costs and benefits of adding the citizenship question as opposed to taking other Mm -hmm. alternative approaches to accomplishing the secretary's objective. And the parties also have a constitutional claim that they are making, which is that the addition of the citizenship question will prevent the census from acting as 
the kind of actual enumeration that the Constitution requires in violation of the enumeration clause. So those are the two main issues, and the parties and the justices definitely seem to be more interested in the administrative law question, right. whether the secretary's decision is supported by adequate evidence and is adequately reasoned. Yeah, I want to talk about some of those um, kind of the um, alternative evidence that you referenced. But first, I just want to um, start the way that Noel Francisco, the Solicitor General, started um, his argument to the justices, which was that you know the Census Bureau has asked a citizenship question um, on the census from 1820 to 1950, almost unbroken. And then since that time, it's act- asked about citizenship in some other form, not on the census, but in other um, surveys that uh, the Census Bureau um, administers. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In March 2018, Secretary Ross reinstated the citizenship question that has been asked as part of the census in one form or another for nearly 200 years. And so what is wrong with um, adding the question now? So I guess I would just go to what Justice Sotomayor immediately mm-hmm. interrupted this Solicitor <laughs> General with, which is... The district court's invalidation of that decision was wrong. I'm for- sorry. It's not been a part of the survey, which is where he reinstated it, since 1950. And for uh, 65 years, every secretary of the Department of Commerce, every uh, statistician, including this secretary statistician, recommended against adding the question. And part of the reasons why it hadn't um, included the citizenship question for such a long time is because around that time, the relevant experts and Census Bureau made the determination that adding the citizenship question and including it would depress turnout significantly mm-hmm. and accuracy in response rates. Um, the coincidence of um, when the census stopped asking the citizenship question is 1950s, 1960s, you know, that is also a time during which the kind of immigration enforcement, you know, ramped up in some respects. And, of course, that is one of the main reasons why census experts are concerned about the response rates to the census with the addition of the citizenship question, that it's going to depress um, non-citizens' response rates and also citizens' response rates who are fearful that the information that they respond to in the census will be used against their friends, families, or loved ones. So part of the reason why it is unlawful is that the reasons why the secretary gave for adding back in the -hmm. question don't account for the relevant evidence. Yeah, the arguments got, um, well, there was, uh, I think, the one point of agreement between um, the liberals and conservatives that was that this case is a really technical case. We heard both um, <laughs> Justice Alito and Justice Breyer, um, you know, mention the te- technical aspects Critical. of this. Well, this is this gets really, really technical, but, well, and you I'm sorry. No, go ahead. That, that's, that's fine. Impossible. So I have two rather technical questions on what I think is the heart of this case. It's a technical case. And there was a lot of discussion about some of um, you, know, you had talked about that this information would be less accurate. A lot of these um, kind of factual um, things that I wasn't I wasn't sure if they were going to get into them in the argument. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how it would be that asking citizenship data would be less accurate um, than the alternative that the challengers you know want uh, the Census Bureau to take. Uh, sure. So the concern with adding the citizenship question is as follows. Mm-hmm. First is that some number of people are not going to respond to the census. And so by depressing turnout, you are going to get less, less accurate information that is collected by virtue of the census. Mm-hmm. Now, when an individual doesn't respond to the census, of course, there are other ways that the federal government can attempt to count them. So it can send a non-response follow-up. You know, an individual can go out to the location and attempt to get a response. And then if that doesn't fail, or if that doesn't work, rather, um, then they might send individuals asking proxies, like neighbors mm-hmm. or people nearby who live in the location. And if that fails, extrapolate information about nearby demographics to make an estimate about who lives in a, a given location. And to the extent that those things are going to be less accurate, that's going to affect the quality of the information that the Census Bureau receives. Another problem is that some number of people um, the Census Bureau found by conducting studies 
would answer the citizenship question incorrectly. Mm -hmm. Um, And what that does is it makes the ability of the Census Bureau and other arms of the federal government to rely on administrative records in order to match people with their responses much more difficult because if someone isn't accurately responding to the question, it makes it more difficult to match that person with other administrative records Hmm. uh, that they might have answered accurately. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is going to decrease the quality of the information that the federal government has to do a variety of other things. So those are just two of the ways in which the information is made less accurate, but they have a ton of spillover effects because both by reducing the response rate and by generating false answers, it makes it much harder for the federal government to then collect additional data or make inferences based on the census data together with other information. And that has spillover effects to other federal programs as well. Um, yeah. You know, were you surprised that the justices really um, talked about these kind of factual things in the argument or spent so much time talking about um, these issues? Or, or did you anticipate that they would really dig into the record here? Um, I mean, yes and no. You know, Justice Breyer is always up for a technical discussion. <laughs> so, of course, he's going to want to discuss this sort of thing. Um, you know, I think he had a question early on that, you know, assured the parties that, you know, I gather from the record, and we've looked at it in my office pretty carefully, so, like, this is just a very on-brand issue (laughs) and approach for Justice Breyer to take. Um, I don't necessarily think it is that surprising that the other justices also dug into the record, just because this is, in some ways, like the heart of the case, whether the Secretary's justification line up with the evidence in the administrative record or whether the Secretary's reasoning takes account of the relevant evidence in the administrative record. So in order to answer that question, you do kind of have to do some digging. I was a little bit surprised you mentioned Justice Alito also kind of digging into the technical details in this case, that Justice Alito seemed to almost poo-poo the challenger's arguments on the ground that, well, the evidence is really technical, so what am I supposed to do about it? But to my mind, that is a knock against the secretary in some ways, given that all of the relevant people with the technical expertise Mm -hmm. and all of the experts in the Census Bureau said, well, look, the secretary's chosen method is less accurate, and it wouldn't help to enforce the Voting Rights Act. And so given that the experts are kind of all on one side, you know, aside from the conclusory statements of a political appointee, I wasn't exactly sure um, that Justice Alito was making the right inference based on the level of technicality um, in the uh, underlying administrative record. Hmm. So, I mean, was that the point that Justice Kavanaugh was getting at at the very end or near the end of the argument where he was saying that if if these are um, kind of technical and policy questions, then why is this something that the Supreme Court should decide? Why shouldn't we leave that discretion up to um, the secretary? Well, assuming there is review and assuming it's arbitrary and capricious, as you know, it's deferential. Yes. And the question, I think, here is uh, a policy judgment that it's more important to get accurate citizenship information, even at the expense, potentially, of a slight decrease, potentially, in response rates. And the question is, given the statutes, why does that judgment fall below the standard of reasonableness in assessing the different policy considerations? Our position is... Uh, is, is that kind of what he was getting at? Yeah, I think that he was also channeling, you know, that same impulse about, well, if it's a technical question, mm-hmm. we let the agency decide. The problem here is that, you know, the relevant agency has amassed a wealth of evidence that the secretary's chosen method would make the information collected less accurate mm-hmm. and that the alternative methods would be more accurate. So you can still look at that underlying evidence and see that the secretary's conclusion doesn't take account of it, even if, you know, you yourself could not propose a better modeling technique. Like, you don't really have to, given that the relevant experts have already done that for you and Mm -hmm. have already, you know, been using that method for the last 50, 60 years. So uh, that's definitely the impulse that they were channeling. And it is a little, I mentioned that Justice Breyer was being on brand and his love of the technicality Mm -hmm. and the experts. These justices are being a little off-brand in their desire to just defer to administrative right. agencies and like, oh, well, what do, what are courts going to do here? You know, I guess nothing. Um, this is, of course, counter to the general trend and impulse of the Roberts Court tendency to view administrative decisions with skepticism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a few people have wondered, you know, well, well, when is the court going to say, let's just leave it to the agency head and, and when are they not going to? Mm-hmm. 
in relation to this deference question, um, Justice Ginsburg noted in, in, in the oral argument um, that maybe the Supreme Court should be deferring to Congress in that, you know, Congress has delegated this authority uh, to the Secretary of Commerce. And so Congress can come in and set limits. And even though the citizenship question has kind of um, been on the radar in that, you know, the the Census Bureau has taken a position that it, it doesn't think that it should be um, on the census, Congress still hasn't done anything um to prohibit it from being on the census. Mm-hmm. And it, it has done other things to prohibit it, um, to prohibit the Census Bureau from asking about things like religion. Um, so mm-hmm. she kind of posed the question, should we be deferring to Congress here? And just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so I think it's always tricky to attempt to read into congressional silence or mm-hmm. congressional inaction yeah. um, any particular intent. So here, you know, the argument would be, well, if Congress wanted to prohibit this, they would have done something, and by not doing anything, they would surely, uh, you know, I guess, leave it up to the agency to decide. And while it's true that Congress has prohibited the agency from asking certain things, like about religion, you know, they haven't done things such as prohibiting the Census Bureau from printing a census in red and green, thus Mm -hmm. making it really difficult for individuals who are colorblind to fill it out, or Mm -hmm. printing the entire census in Hebrew or printing the entire census in Latin and making it really difficult for people to respond. Or French, um, like Justice so, Breyer, um, <laughs> very on brand as well, said in the argument. Right. <laughs> um, and, and so I think it's, it's tricky to read in, you know, Congress's failure to prohibit any particular question to say that, well, they're okay with the Census Bureau doing that, in part because they have restricted the Census Bureau's department to do a bunch of things, you know, in part through the requirement that says if you are going to ask or acquire information, you know, use administrative records to the maximum extent possible. Mm-hmm. And so here this is the situation where there are administrative records that the agency could use to reconstruct citizenship. So Congress has made a specific prohibition here that is arguably relevant, um, in addition to the general constraints of the Administrative Procedure Act, which bind the secretary and require the secretary's decisions to be reasoned and supported by the evidence. And, you know, those requirements um, uh, you know, were enacted kind of as the Census Bureau was phasing out the citizenship question. So those have, you know, created some new requirements hmm. that secretaries would need to comply with in order to justify the readmission of the question. Hmm. Oh, and Leah, I, I wanted to just follow up on, on one point, because you mentioned sort of at least some of the conservative justices in some ways being uh, off-brand in some of their uh, approach to the the argument. And it seemed like there are a couple other areas in which they're also possibly being off-brand, one in terms of uh, possibly taking more seriously the importance of enforcing the Voting Rights Act, and the other being uh, deferring or even looking at all to foreign sources of law, including the UN. So I'm just wondering what you think about that in terms of uh, a takeaway from the argument. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up so I didn't have to. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, you know, you, you have to wonder if the sky is still going to be blue the next day when <laughs> Chief Justice are, you know, starts asking questions, demanding to know, well, isn't this going to make it more difficult to enforce the Voting Rights Act if the secretary isn't able to ask the citizenship question? Um, do, you, do you think it wouldn't help voting rights uh, enforcement? The CVAP, uh, Citizen uh, uh, Voting Age Population, uh, is the critical element in voting rights uh, uh, enforcement, um, and this is getting citizen information. Well, as you know, and part of why that's so shocking is, of course, the Chief Justice authored the opinion in Shelby County that defanged the kind of crown jewel of the Voting Rights Act, um, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, that made it you know, much harder to enforce right. the prohibitions in Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, add to Shelby County decisions like Abbott versus Perez or other recent decisions in which the Chief Justice has really narrowly construed the scope of the Voting Rights Act. And, of course, before he was a judge, he participated in um, executive department uh, negotiations and recommendations in which, you know, he argues that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act shouldn't prohibit any voting restrictions that have a disparate effect on disenfranchising racial minorities as opposed to those voting restrictions that are purposefully attempting to disenfranchise racial minorities. So just the oddity of the Chief Justice 
expressing concern about the teeth or strength of the Voting Rights Act was truly something to behold, you know, particularly because the Trump administration has yet to bring any Voting Rights mm -hmm. Act lawsuits and the Voting Rights Act was enacted during a time in which um, Census Bureau wasn't asking about citizenship, but, you know, that's entirely a separate question. And yes, you know, both, I think it was Justice Kavanaugh who said, well, what are we to make of the fact that all of these other countries, and he listed a bunch of European countries, you know, are asking about right. the uh, citizenship, um, shouldn't doesn't that mean, you know, the United States should be able to as well? On the census, the, the United Nations recommends that countries ask a citizenship question on the census, and a number of other countries uh, do it. Spain, Germany, Canada, Australia, Ireland, Mexico ask a citizenship question. And the United States has asked a citizenship question, as you know, in one form or another since 1820, excluding 1840. Uh, and, again, long form at times, in more recent times, and then on the ACS since 2005. The question is, does that international practice, that U.N. recommendation, that historical practice in the United States affect how we should look at the inclusion of the citizenship question in this case? The same guidance. And, you know, that's also just absolutely mind-boggling, <laughs> given that Justice Kavanaugh wrote opinions on the D.C. Circuit in which he argued that, you know, federal statutes shouldn't even look to or incorporate principles of international law on issues like the law of war, which is primarily an international law right. issue, um, unless Congress has specifically commanded that. So the idea that these justices are wringing their hands over, you know, international law practice, um, uh, you know, when they have authored opinions saying we don't care about that or, you know, the most recent Eighth Amendment case, Bucklew versus Precis, in which the court didn't even look to international law or evolving standards of decency and asking whether a particular method of execution was consistent with the Eighth Amendment was really uh, interesting, I'll say. <laughs> mm -hmm. I should say for our listeners who aren't as familiar with the census case that the Voting Rights Act is comes into play here because that is uh, what Secretary Ross pointed to um, as why the census needs to ask the citizenship question was to help with enforcement. And we actually did a deep dive episode on the census. So if you uh, need some background on it, you can take a listen to that. Um, but I feel like we could talk about census all day long. <laughs> um, but I know there are some other cases that we really want to get your perspective on. Um, is there anything else you think that we should really say about the arguments in the census case? Uh, like you said, we could talk about it all day, but I think we, we covered a lot of good uh, ground here. Were you asking me or were you asking Leah? Well, I was asking Leah. But that's, oh, that's... Sorry, I kind of jumped into that. You were looking at me, but then I, as I was answering that, I realized, <laughs> well, I can't why are you asking see you. me? <laughs> <laughs> all right, well... Uh, Let's we could let's ask the actual expert, uh, Leah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think the one thing I would just note is that in the Solicitor General's rebuttal, Justice Sotomayor mm -hmm. really, I think, exposed a problem with the you know Solicitor General's claim. You know, the SG in the rebuttal argued that well, individuals might boycott the census um, right. if you know you add the citizenship question. You shouldn't kind of take that into account, and Justice Sotomayor immediately interjecting, you know, asking whether Hispanics would be um, boycotting the census, and if that was the Solicitor General's argument, and arguing, you know, about whether the Solicitor General was maintaining it was rational or not, that they had any, you know, legitimate fears about what the administration was going to do with citizenship responses. Uh, right, Your Honor, and under my friends on the other side's position, you are effectively empowering any group in the country to knock off any question on the census if they simply get together and boycott it. There are many people in this country who might find the sex question objectionable because it limits individuals to a binary choice. If a large number of people got together in one state and said, we're going to boycott the census, General, as long as you include that sex General, question, you're effectively empowering General, them are to you knock suggesting, that off. Okay. Justice are, you suggesting, are you suggesting that Hispanics are boycotting the census? Not they, the, are you suggesting they don't have whether it's rational or not, that they don't have a legitimate fear. Um, and I think that that was a very notable exchange mm -hmm. that kind of highlights in some ways like the core issue in this case. Um, uh, you know, there's more I could say, but I'll, I'll just stop there. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of um, stressful moments or tense moments between um, Justice Sotomayor and Noah Francisco. Um, that was probably the height of it. But at, right from the very start, it seemed like, um, you know, those two were 
on separate ends of this issue. All right. And so switching gears a little bit, um, let's talk about some of the the criminal cases, um, which I know, Leah, that you've been uh, focusing on as well. Um, On April 17th, there was an argument in uh, U.S. against Davis, which was a case that called on the justices to consider some of their recent cases involving crime of violence and vagueness. And Leah, you wrote after that argument um, that this case, Davis, could potentially be the last Johnson domino to fall. Can you talk a little bit about you know, some of the background of the, the case that we're talking about here and how that fits into some of the trends we're seeing uh, at the Supreme Court now in terms of taking on these cases? Yes, absolutely. So Johnson versus United States was a 2015 decision in which the Supreme Court held unconstitutional the Armed Career Criminal Act's residual clause. The Armed Career Criminal Act establishes an additional set of penalties on certain individuals who are convicted of being a felon in possession of a firearm. Um, And those additional penalties are a mandatory minimum term of at least 15 years imprisonment. So Johnson invalidated that clause. um, And then last term in Sessions versus DiMaia, the court held unconstitutional, uh, similarly worded provision in Section 16B, which is the general federal definition of violent felonies. Um, And so now in Davis, the question is whether 18 U.S.C. 924C is also unconstitutionally void for vagueness. And 18 U.S.C. 924C is worded the same way as 18 U.S.C. Section 16 the general definition of crime of violence. And so that is kind of the issue in Davis. Um, uh, And, you know, one of the significant questions that the justices were interested in is whether there was any possible basis for upholding 924C, even though they had already invalidated a provision that was worded the same way in 16B. And so, Leah, so then given that this language is so similar here, what sort of possible way could there be for this law not to suffer the same fate as the other two that were struck down? Um, well, so one possible basis was just that the government in Sessions versus DiMaia had not argued that the court should interpret Section 16B in a way other than what the court had said it was going to do, namely using the categorical approach, asking whether the ordinary version of a crime involves a substantial risk of physical force, whereas in Davis, the government is arguing that the court should abandon that categorical approach and interpret 924C to mean something else, and specifically to focus on the actual conduct of the defendant's offense in assessing whether the defendant's conduct involved a substantial risk of force. So the government is arguing you should interpret the provisions differently in order to avoid invalidating 924C. But then the question is, well, why would you interpret them differently given that they say the same thing? Right. Um, and there was, I think the reality is the government didn't have a great answer to that question. Um, and that was very frustrating for the justices um, because, of course, the justices know the government would like the court to uphold it, but merely saying if you interpret this differently, you can uphold it isn't a reason for interpreting it differently. Um, and the only, I think, possible basis for distinguishing the two that came out was, well, 18 U.S.C. Section 16 from Sessions versus DiMaia, that occasionally applied to prior convictions, whereas 924C, when it applies, always involves the conduct for which a defendant is currently being convicted. Um, But that doesn't, again, always distinguish Section 16B, which applies both to prior convictions and occasionally some current offense or current conviction conduct. And so after the argument, uh, how, do you, how do you see this going? Do you think the justices are going to strike down this law? Do you think it's unclear? Where do you think this is going after having uh, reviewed the argument? Um, looking at the argument, I think it is more likely that the justices will invalidate 924C in part because they just never got a great answer to the question of why they should distinguish Section 16B from 924C. It seemed that Justices Kagan and Sotomayor were rather firmly in the 924C is invalid camp. Um, And Justice Gorsuch seemed to be as well. And, of course, Justice Gorsuch was the fifth vote for 
invalidating Section 16B in Sessions versus DiMaia. Right. Um, however, at the end of the argument, Justice Gorsuch asked the defendant's lawyer a curious question, asking whether there was any historical evidence about how to reconcile two competing canons of statutory interpretation. Yeah. One is the rule of lenity, which is you interpret criminal statutes in ways that favor the defendant. The other is the canon of constitutional avoidance, under which you interpret statutes to avoid invalidating oh. them. Yes. We also have, though, the canon of construction, the rule of lenity, um, that we don't typically construe statutes to be uh, um, as grievous as they could possibly be read. Um, and, and for the notice problems that you've talked about and the separation of powers problems, if Congress wants to uh, act more grievously, it needs to speak more clearly before it deprives a person of his liberty. Usually those two canons point in the same direction. This is an unusual case where they point in opposite directions. Have, have you done any study or examined um, how historically those two canons, when they compete, are reconciled? And so if Justice Gorsuch, you know, finds something in some of those historical secondary sources that directs him to apply the canon of constitutional avoidance and basically come up with some new interpretation of the statute that might not be sufficiently more to the text, you know, maybe he would do that. Um, Justice Breyer also seemed interested in finding a way to not invalidate the statute, right. um, but I'm not sure that he was convinced that either of the two approaches he floated at argument were the right way to go. Um, so I still think it is more likely that the court will invalidate the provision, um, but not totally clear. All right. And so on any of uh, these cases, Lee, are there any sort of other big takeaways that you think we should you know, look for, anything to watch out for as we're waiting for the opinions to come down over the next uh, month or two in these cases? You know, I guess I'm just kind of curious to see whether the sheer volume of cases on the Armed Career Criminal Act is going to affect the justices' orientation toward those statutes in some cases. You know, it might be that the outcome in Davis is driven in part by what might be some frustrations among the justices interpreting some of the other provisions in the Armed Career Criminal Act. And if they feel like they are struggling to come up with a sensible way of interpreting other provisions in the Armed Career Criminal Act, maybe they will feel less inclined to attempt to save Section 924C with some odd construction. Um, or perhaps they will think that, you know, if they are narrowly interpreting the scope of other ACA provisions or more broadly interpreting the scope of other ACA provisions, that might affect the analysis in Davis as well. Um, it's hard to say, but you'd have to think that the justices are doing some deep thinking about the Armed Career Criminal Act and all of its insanity this term, given the number of cases they have on that statute. Yeah, even before this term, we heard um, some of the justices from the bench uh, expressed frustration with the amount of work um, that the Armed Career Criminal Act is um, making for them, and this term certainly can't help. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think earlier this term, in one of the arguments, whether it was Sims or Stitt, um, one of the justices kind of floated the possibility of, like, why don't we just let Congress correct this and just, like, get out of this business entirely by giving the statute some very narrow construction that if Congress wanted to change, it could. Yes, we can always, Congress can do anything. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thanks. We appreciate you coming on uh, the podcast to chat about these things. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Maybe we can have you on uh, next season from Ann Arbor, something for our listeners to look forward to. Yes, that would be lovely. All right. Thanks, Leah. Thanks a lot. Take care. Okay, that was good. Yeah, that was mm -hmm. a nice way to, to end the season. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, uh, you know, that she was saying about how many cases, uh, ACA cases, the justices had taken. And you surprised me last week on our podcast um, with the fact that there was only one Fourth Amendment case um, exactly. the whole term. So I'm wondering if they're, that's being kind of boxed out by these. There's only so much... So many criminal cases you can listen to in one term. Well, it's getting boxed out of this podcast. So, it's, you know, it's just mirroring, you know. Real life. Yeah. Art imitating SCOTUS or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I think the other thing that we didn't really chat about with um, Leah in the argument about the census arguments mm -hmm. was that it seems pretty clear cut that the Supreme Court um, is going to decide along ideological lines that... Um, the Census Bureau can add the citizenship question. At least that that's what it seemed like from oral arguments. Yeah, I mean, well, I think we talked about this in the in our deep dive with Mithin that, 
you know, at least when we were talking about it, I think we we wondered whether this is going to be a travel ban part mm-hmm. two, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, by that we mean, you know, whether it's going to be another five four decision where the Republican appointees defer to the Trump administration in a case where challengers are telling the court to, you know, look at what they're saying. Is this really like pernicious underlying conduct? And the court just kind of doesn't reach it and say, we're going to defer. And so it does seem like we're looking for a a sequel of that with the census case. Yeah, perhaps. It's always hazardous to try and guess what the Supreme Court's going to do after world argument. But yeah, well, if if they do something different, we'll just go back and delete this part. So, okay, All right. Yeah. We'll also have to do like a men in black kind of thing for anyone who listened. Yeah. It's going to be for for good cause, though. Okay. It's to enforce the Voting Rights Act. <laughs> um, okay. Well, that's going to do it for this tremendously long deep dive episode. There was one more thing that... What was the other thing? I wasn't sure if I was going to bring it up or not. Oh, um, no. There was something that happened at the court that hasn't been getting a lot of attention. Um this week, I decided to try the beef chili in the cafeteria. <laughs> we should. This um, is not. This is a scandalous, a scandalous conversation. No, it's not. All, I'm just saying. I just. It just was not that good. It didn't like make me sick. I just. I just didn't feel great after. So I'm just. Justice Kavanaugh, if you're listening, and you are, um, <laughs> you know, just, you know, give us a call. We could talk about some some cafeteria options. And that's because the newest justice is always the member of the yes. cafeteria committee so presumably that's who you would direct your yeah when that's also unofficially the person who has to listen to cases and controversies and then brief the justices before their conference a little known fact yeah right? yeah yeah, yeah. Sure. was i not supposed to say that Shit. Uh, all right well, i think you're gonna have to beep that out too i mean i'm just you know again well if the you know i'm just getting all worked up so <laughs> okay probably... well um you can catch us next time. Um, we'll break down. next time. <laughs> no, we're going to have a next time. All right. Sad. <laughs> you can catch us next time where we'll chat about um, all the food options at the cafeteria um, at the Supreme Court and ones you should stay away from. At food.bloomberglaw. And for more substantive material, you can follow along the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Mike, why are you doing this? <laughs> it's dot com. I like Check it. Out. It's like a wrap. Bloomberglaw.com. Yeah. Anyway. I got it out. Oof. We'll use that one. All right. That's like a radio commercial. <laughs> Terms and conditions may apply. Thanks for listening.